Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents, a show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Jason Schiftel. Jason is the host of the China Unraveled podcast. And today, you guessed it, talking about China. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, a show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. And welcome to the show. Hey, Joe, thanks for having me. Yeah, I wanted to get you on because, um, you know, there's a whole world out there outside of North America. And China is, you know, the second largest country in the world by GDP. And I realized I don't really know that much about China. So I thought we could start with a little introduction and maybe what inspired you to start your podcast, China Unraveled. Yeah, sure. So my interest in China goes back like a really, really long time, over probably over 20 years. It was when I was really young, been an interest really as far back as I can remember. And then the sort of more professional interest, not even interest, professional work and study happened around 2010. Actually, when I was in college, I learned Chinese. I got a scholarship to study in China. I was in Beijing. I was living there, et cetera, et cetera. And then, yeah, I continued to go on. I actually did a lot of international development work, international finance. Basically, how do you get countries like Argentina, different European countries, China, et cetera, to get a little bit more uh, gas in the engine as I try and basically level up? And then about a couple of years ago, I started to put all this together specifically about China. I just wanted to put out particularly a book that summarized kind of China's story, right? Because I think China's story is heading in a really bad direction. So I wanted to give people a framework for how it got to where it is, what's coming, why it's coming, what comes next. And that's sort of the genesis of all this. And then the podcast came out, I think it was February, March, 2020. It was when the pandemic had basically blown up right out of China. And I was like, oh, wow, I got to stop editing this book for a minute put out some content that people can understand that's digestible, that's approachable and start telling people some of what's going on. Yeah. And there's definitely a gap out there for what's going on in China. Uh, I know for me, especially, it's kind of hard to find unless you're really looking. What, why do you think that is? Yeah. Great question. So basically foreign journalists have been booted out of China and that really accelerated in 2020 with the pandemic, but we're seeing getting close to cultural revolution levels of social control, media control, uh, internet and communication controls, they're really extensive. They're way more ever present than basically we've seen in any country ever. And a real casualty in all this were foreign correspondents was basically a whole host of people that used to have a, an, an eye into what was going on in China. It really just started to close. And that includes a lot of foreign businesses, a lot of businessmen who've been in China, been in Hong Kong, Shanghai regions for decades, since the 80s, since it really started to open up, they really just lost access and insight into what's going on. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is bring sort of this broader framework where if you don't have as much information day to day about what's going on, if you have a broader framework, it can help you put in, put the pieces together and you kind of know where things are heading. But that's like more important than ever, because it's just, like you said, extremely hard to get good information out of China. And that even includes the CIA. <laughs> I mean, the CIA I mean, intelligence agencies, the CIA basically got all of its human intelligence resources booted out of China a little over a decade ago, basically all got slaughtered uh, when the sort of bugs in the system revealed where everybody was. And so even on the, the US intelligence sort of national security side, there's a lot of information and electronic surveillance going on, but the actual resources on the ground are, are limited. Yeah, for sure. That's actually a really good point. It's just, it's not just, you know, regular DIY investors like myself or, or others who may be listening, but governments can't get into China. So of course, it's going to be difficult to get the information that you want. So that brings up the next question I have for you. I'm a, I like to follow energy markets. I, I deal a lot with oil and carbon and uh, 
recently there was kind of a, I wouldn't say a panic sell, but we lost about 4% a day. And it was based off China and the Shanghai, lo- Shanghai lockdowns. And, and basically they've, they've imported in March 14% less than normal is what the headlines are saying on Reuters. So I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about what's going on in Shanghai and how that's going to impact the global economy. Yeah, so I just did a big video on Shanghai because this is really the place to look to see where things are heading in China. And you really nailed it. It's a it's a major it's a major event. And we're seeing it with energy markets. So well, there's a lot of problems with with Chinese energy imports and the whole energy system right now, but it's hitting everything. It's hitting manufacturing. So I'm pretty sure we saw also a decline in some of the production numbers as well. Energy reduction reduced energy imports would follow with that as well because those are heavily connected, particularly in China. But Shanghai in general is a, basically it's a sign of where China's COVID policies have brought it. So the way I like to think about it, I like to tell people is what China kind of did in 2020, 2021, is it, it didn't like solve the COVID issue. It basically just kicked the can down the road, right? And what we're seeing now is it didn't really, a lot of Western countries sort of front loaded the pain and then they're kind of doing better on the back end. China did the opposite. And now it's getting a lot of back-end pain. And what it's doing is it's refusing to basically stop the zero COVID policy. And it sounded kind of minor, you know, it's really kind of minor with alpha, alpha variant of COVID and the Delta variant. Now you have Omicron, which is the which is basically the most in- infectious thing we've ever encountered. And you cannot really have a zero COVID policy without doing super extreme measures all across the country. And that's that what that means. And people have known this for a while, but it basically means, all right, we have a city, there's a couple cases in a city, and you lock down the entire city, you do millions of mass testing across the entire city, and you, you try and control it this way. But it's basically just spreading out of control. And it hit Shanghai. And you know, in March, it started to get it started to increase and the authorities started to basically put on greater and greater lockdowns. And now we're at a point where they basically have indefinite citywide lockdown for the foreseeable future. And the real challenge for China is that there's no way out of this problem, right? The solution to reducing these lockdowns, because what happened is the government has wedded its political legitimacy and authority to its ability to control the pandemic and to maintain public health. And it burnished this image early on by looking way more impressive than Western nations when it kind of booted COVID out in 2020. Now it can't look poor and terrible on the back end when it turns out that its policies didn't really work. So it needs better vaccines, but its vaccines don't work. And it's a bit too proud to actually buy Western vaccines. And even if it did, there's a line and you have a over a billion people in your population. Just, you know, you need more, this is a multi-sequence process. It takes months, it takes, you know, it'll take over a year probably. There, there's no good answer for this. And the government has committed to continuing these lockdowns. And what that basically means is that we're gonna see a rolling series of disruptions all across the Chinese manufacturing sector in particular. And that is, I mean, we're even seeing Apple now, which is basically the most important client for any, any Chinese company. If you're a supplier of Apple, that's an amazing thing. They're, they're finally starting to have their own problems and they're not going to be able to ship some of their products, their newest products when they expect it. It's getting pushed push back to next year. And this is just happening everywhere. And Shanghai in particular, again, I just want to give people some context for Shanghai. Shanghai is an amazing city for people who've never been. This is also the most dynamic, most economically vibrant city in China by far. There, there's no comparison. It is the most, the best city in the best region in China. And it's been like this for thousands of years. Shanghai itself is only a couple hundred years old, but the other cities that were a little farther upriver, same thing, just a couple miles away. 
And that's really important because this is where so much of the Western investment has been. This is the best place outside of the Hong Kong, Guangzhou region in the South where there was the Pearl River Delta. This was the best place. This is where Tesla's major plant is. This is where a whole host of industries, whether it's petrochemicals, refining, manufacturing, everything is, is trying to be in, the, in this uh, region around Shanghai. It's, it's also the most developed part of China. This is, a, this is a first world city. This is not like a real part of China. If we talk more, I'd go into how a lot about we hear about China is not quite what we think. And there's a lot more poverty and problems than, than we're used to being told. But Shanghai is not like that. Shanghai is a real first class, world class city. And the fact that we're seeing food shortages, we're seeing people jumping out of uh, balconies, we're starting to get dueling narratives. You, this is where I was talking earlier about that social controls. China is unwilling to, the, the government is unwilling to change its policies, but it's also unwilling to say why they're really happening. And the people are, get caught in this mental craze about what to do and how to think about things. So you have these dueling narratives of you must sacrifice your food in order for the state to maintain authority or no, it's just, it gets really crazy and really horrific. And it's really something to keep an eye on. And just for your getting back to what you were talking about, because you mentioned energy trading, a lot of things are about to get disrupted in China, right? That's, that's the way things are headed. And we could take this in all sorts of directions, but I would really, anyone who wants to know about China, what's going on, where things are heading, where things are heading, really pay attention to Shanghai. And in particularly in a year, we might be seeing so pretty large famines in China. So this early signs of food problems, although this, in this case, it's mostly about distribution. It's about moving food within the city. So you're seeing people, you're seeing all these problems with food, medicine, water, electricity, all that in Shanghai. And it's really because you have a zero COVID policy that doesn't allow you to distribute and move things around the way you normally would. You have workers who aren't allowed to do it. You have people who can't you know, take things from point A to point B. And so it's really disrupting the whole system, but they're even more serious challenges coming down the pipeline that are even even bigger. Wow, yeah, that's definitely a lot to take in. And I think that, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about Shanghai and, and the significance of that city because, you know, we really don't, unless you go there, unless you travel and live there like you have, it's really hard to understand sometimes sort of the logistics of a country. Like I've traveled through Europe and a few other places and it wasn't until I've gone to those countries that I really understood you know, okay, this is Berlin. This is what this country, this is what this city feels like, you know, until you're there, you don't really get it. So I think it's important to provide people with a little bit of insight to that city. So thanks for that. Because yeah, I've never been to China, but it is really something that I'm looking at because with energy, you need China. Like it's China is such a huge exporter of goods. You need those pieces for the global economy to function. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what's a good sign that China's going to come out of this and maybe what's a risk indicator for something for us to watch in China. I think I'll give a, a bit of a broader context for just what you mentioned about China being such a major exporter, because this is really, this is part of the key story of why China is where it is and why it is the way it is. And we're in a really important moment uh, in history right now, where the post-1990s, post-Soviet Union, post-Cold War era, you know, it started in the 1990s, and the, the core of this project was to bring basically China and the former Soviet Union, Russia, into the fold and to make more of a global system out of this, right? The old alliance system the United States had up till 1991 and through there was actually intended to counter the Soviet Union. It was, right, it was an alliance sort of meant to face up against them. And then, then it tried to evolve kind of in an odd way into something different. 
And what we're seeing now is the breakdown of that attempt to integrate these countries into the broader sphere, right? And this is obviously happening first with Russia. And I'm bringing this up because one great way to think about Russia and China and how this worked out is that what Russia did, it, what, what its role was in the last 30 years has been to be, it's on the input side. It provides a lot of these resources that the world consumes, right? So Russia never really modernized its industry after the fall of the Soviet Union. And even clearly its defense sector, all of it is, it's always been pretty garbage is being revealed to be so now. And it never had a large consumer base. So basically the largest country, physically largest country on earth was just selling its resources, selling all of its natural wealth to the rest of the world. Obviously oil, coal, natural gas, energy markets, that's huge, well-known, but even all these industrial materials, industrial metals, titanium, you know, nickel, I can go all the way down, right? It's a huge export of all of these different commodities. And that's been its role. And that has a huge, that's been a major force in controlling inflation in the West and doing many things that have supported the sort of system and the trading system that we have today. China's role is on the other side. It is the, it's the export, it's the, the production node in this system, right? It, fo it focuses on the outputs. And the way this happened is that you have all these super cheap goods coming from all over the world, including Russia. And then what happened is China made itself the most advantageous place anywhere in the world to produce something, and in particular to do final assembly. So basically you would you know, build every little piece of your widget wherever you want all across the world, right? You go, basically you're doing global tax and labor arbitrage. You're choosing the best place to produce whatever it is for the cheapest cost, so cheapest labor, lowest taxes. And then what you do is you use very cheap shipping to bring all of that, all the different pieces assembled all around the world. And you, you bring them to the point of final assembly, which became China, and which became in particular the area around uh, Hong Kong and the area around Shanghai, those are the two main regions in China where that happened. And what's happening now is the entire unraveling of this global system that we have. We're seeing it with Russia, obviously, but we're also seeing it early on when we had the breakdown of all these global supply chains. So you're seeing all the input costs arising. You're also seeing the breakdown of the shipping uh, systems that allowed for the super low cost, just-in-time delivery, which is what enabled that whole super convoluted system of all the little parts coming together in China. So I'm pretty sure in March, only six to seven percent, six or seven percent of all uh, Asia to North America maritime shipping arrived on time. Six to seven percent. This is not a, a viable way to do things, right? The, that isn't really a viable way of doing things. And so this is already something that was really hitting China hard. And it had a major, major headwind to the manufacturing system it had developed, and which is the one of the major pieces and pillars of its economy. And it's the major internationalized element of its economy. And that now is getting hit with the COVID problems. And so that's kind of why I wanted to give a bit of context. So there's, there's many risk factors now of which the COVID and the Shanghai example is just the canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways. And the I honestly, at this point, there isn't a lot of great things to point to that China can really come out of this because- What's happening also just in the con in the in comparison to Russia and what's going on with Ukraine is China has this little thing called called Taiwan off the coast. And there's a very, I don't want to make it sound too similar, but it's roughly analogous. There's a situation where you have a expansionist imperialist power like Russia that wants to have, you know, a piece of itself that it thinks an old piece of itself that it thinks it deserves and it needs and it actually is very key to its vision of its own security needs. And also you have uh Taiwan, which although it was really never part of China in any real historical sense, that is the that's the 
narrative that the, the Communist Party has has wedded itself to. And you know, Taiwan is also the center of of silicon manufacturing in the entire world. And what we're seeing in Ukraine is basically the fact China is basically realizing that the vision it had of a world where it could just take over Taiwan sort of simply easily, it would make it a fait accompli. We're just, we're so much larger. We're so much bigger. We'll just steamroll in. No one interfere. This is not going to happen. So mentally within China, in the, the Chinese political class and the CCP, the, the Politburo, the Politburo Standing Committee, and in Xi Jinping, they're starting to realize that the basic way that they've thought about things, both on the manufacturing side, the economic side, the in, in terms of their ambitions with Taiwan, and even in terms of their monetary and financial policy, or what we've seen with the Russian central bank, you know, everything that's happened, it's all of this is, has come is, is, is from being revealed to be a house of cards. And so this is a regime that is uncertain of what to do and desperate and very much going to be reactive and trying to deal with a number of uh, problems that are just going to keep coming its way. Interesting you say how they're uncertain what to do, because I have noticed that China has sort of been back and forth on a couple issues. For example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, initially they were saying, well, this isn't an invasion. I don't think they ever said they believed that Russia had the right to invade, but they would they stayed very quiet about it. And they, they kind of discredited the North American journalists who are saying, no, this is an invasion and this is a war. And they've since kind of backed away from a position of power with Russia, I think, from what I can tell. And I feel like if Russia had done better, China would have jumped on board. What do you think about that? Yeah, in general, the relationship between Russia and China is a marriage of convenience. This isn't any sort of alliance, right? I think a lot of the problem we're experiencing today is that people in the West are trying to find historical parallels for the, the moment that we're in. And we keep going back to World War II and we're thinking, oh, it's like the Axis. we got China and you got Russia and they're all together. It's really not. I mean, Russia and China are historical enemies going back forever. And even during the Cold War, China broke with the Soviet Union and China had, we got very close to nuclear war many times between Soviet Union and China. And even when it, the last military conflict that China was in was in 1979, it invaded Vietnam. And it was a very minor conflict because like 70, 80% of China's military capacity was stationed in the Northwest, just in case the Soviet Union decided to get involved. So these have never been great, great allies in any sense. Uh, and it is funny, also, just just what you're saying about the the invasion. It was pretty clear that Putin waited until the end of the Olympics to to do this. Like there was again, it's like, all right, I'm not going to step on your toes. I'm not going to do this. But it is it's limited. I mean, if you ask a really good question, if they had been extremely successful early on, it had been a real just storm the capital, decapitate the leadership type situation. China could have played things differently. But ultimately, the things that really bind these two countries together now, energy is a really big one. But also, they're all starting to realize that, I mean, China in particular, China's the largest commodity importer in the entire world. So it doesn't just need energy from Russia, it needs energy from everywhere. And if it imperils all the relationships that allow it to get energy all over the world, just for Russia, when Russia does maybe 5% of its oil, 10% of its natural gas, that's not the smartest move. So... It's it's dicey. I, I think that there, there's a lot of complications in the relationship, but it isn't. Uh, the key thing is, is it's not an alliance. It's mostly a marriage of convenience, and it's probably going to snap because these two countries can't really help themselves. Can't help each other. Do you know what I mean? Like they can't help. There's no. A lot of Russia's issues are in the West. They're in you know west of Moscow. It's trying to deal with 
Poland is trying to get to the, the Bessarabian Gap, the Polish Gap, get to the Baltic coast. It's doing all sorts of things that Russia has been doing for hundreds of years, and it would be very recognizable to any old sultan or kaiser or, or what have you, right? It's actually a, a similar pattern. Meanwhile, China is just focused on complete, completely you know, the other side of the world, right? It doesn't, they can't help each other. Even Russian uh, in transportation infrastructure is so weak that it couldn't even move troops, do anything that would be useful between these two countries. And they both countries realize that. The real problem for them is just what to do if you're just all alone. So it's better to have, you know, you, you know China has North Korea in a way too, where it's like, ah, I mean, this is a, a menace and a, a nuisance and horrible things, but you need someone on your side. They have Pakistan. They have, again, it's a, a, a sort of horrible list of, uh, I don't know, Avengers, but that's kind of what they're stuck with. Yeah, for sure. And and another issue that I noticed with China that they've sort of gone back on was initially, I, so I was looking at the Golden Dragon, it's the Invesco Golden Dragon ETF. And it was starting to look cheap. Some of these countries were valued, or some of these companies were valued pretty well. But that's, of course, based on the accounting that we can see. So I was kind of skeptical. And then um, that's good. <laughs> China, yeah. So then China comes out and says, we're going to pull our listings off of the American, you know, companies that list whatever NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange off the exchanges. And I'm like, okay, that's a huge red flag. I'm not investing in China. And then now they say, okay, well, actually, we're going to give you more access to our companies. We're going to give you the full gap accounting in China. So I'm like, this country, as you say, doesn't know what they want to do. What, what do you think is going on with the financial world in China? Yeah, so that's been a long-running issue. Basically, I think it started in the Trump administration, but Chinese companies don't run on some accounting that you and I would find legible, basically. And they, they, but nonetheless, they've been allowed to list on, on American exchanges using ADRs, typically through Hong Kong, all this kind of stuff. You know all about that. That's never been a problem. The real challenge is just what do you do? Basically, the Trump and then the now the Biden administration said, all right, you have to you have to start normalizing with the accounting standards of everybody else. And they were really pushing back and they're like, no, 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 don't open the books. We don't want to see it. Uh, you want people to see it. And I actually haven't followed in the last couple of days. I think they've been sort of indicating that they are trying to, they might allow this to happen. Their, their challenge is China is not trying to burn too many bridges because like I said, it's very dependent on the rest of the world. And it's extremely dependent on a lot of US capital and financial markets. And so the Trump administration originally saw a lot of leverage here and thought we could Im you know, impose greater, basically threatened to kick them off and they would eventually comply to some degree. And it seems likely, but again, to do sort of the, the view from 30,000 feet here, we're entering a world where the, the geopolitical risks are transforming. And we're basically entering a world, a world more similar to what we saw before 1986, before we saw Glasnost, Perestroika, Perestroika, yeah, in the Soviet Union. And it basically started to, to open up the, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact and, and that whole thawing of the Cold War. That time, it was very different. So we've had for a long time, you know, oh, you know, you, if you're looking for, I'm just speaking of broad uh, financial sort of macro categories here, you know, if you're looking for certain uh, results, you can go from emerging market, you know, emerging market uh, equities, then you go to bonds and you do this. And you, there's a whole category, you know, a whole pyramid hierarchy you can go through of all these things based on your these different profiles based obviously exchange rates there's many factors but the world is is really changing in that respect and i think russia is a great example to just sort of make things clear a dozens i mean hundreds i don't even know it's hundreds of companies at this point they've all left russia and every single asset they have in that country 
has to be written off. It's gone. You're not getting it back. You could say it's nationalized, but the Russians aren't going to know what to do with any of it either. So it's basically just written off. There's no, no one's going to help you, right? No, there's no mediating. There's no boards. There's no groups that can come between these countries. It's, it's a, there's a hard line here. And we're going to see, I mean, just even to make it more clear, you can't fly over Russia anymore. Like that, that part of that whole swath of the world map is gone. And metaphorically, that's what's happened similarly to its financial system. Basically, everything in Russia is ha- in various respects. That's what's going on. And we are probably going to see something similar happen, not immediately, but in due time in China. And in various degrees, it's not going to be, I don't think, as immediate and extreme because the connections and every China is, is far more integrated into the world economy. Well, it's, it, it depends what you mean. I mean, in a lot of ways, Russia actually is, but, but in terms of the business interests of a lot of companies, way more on the China side. So that's that's where uh, things are heading. And I, I've been trying to reach out more to different financial groups, investors, DIY, everything, because this is a hard thing to, it's a hard thing to process because one of the great innovations really of the 1990s was we had, you know, global market, globally marketed finance, financial products, oh, emerging market equities and this. And whenever there were certain moves with this currency, you could move there and you could do this, you could move there, you could do all that. That's, that's kind of over. What we're going to probably see in the next few years is the, a similar capital flight that we saw when the Soviet Union fell and was collapsing into the Russian Federation in the 1990s. So trillions of dollars of capital flight basically just into the United States. And we're probably going to see something, we're already seeing something similar. Uh, happening now. We've been seeing it in China, happening in China since about 2016. A trillion dollars of capital flight has happened every year in China since they basically cut off the spigot or cut off, we can't view the numbers as much since 2020. But that's that's the way things were looking, right? I mean, that's not a, a sign of a place where the, the wealthy people within the country see a lot of a reason to keep investing in the country or even to keep their money there. So that's a, a real red flag. Uh, but in general, this globalized world, the end of the globalized world that we've known is a massive change. And I think for, for traders and for people who are investing right now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of alpha to get within the volatility, with all the things that are coming. It's just a very different environment. Uh, just an, another quick example is you talk about energy markets. The Russian energy system is probably not too far away from wholesale collapse. And I know that, that sounds very extreme and very intense, but every single Western company that helped maintain, uh, refurbish, inspect, monitor all of its infrastructure has left. And so, for example, on in the China side of things, there's a lot of Eastern energy infrastructure, oil fields, et cetera, that were built in Russia after 1990. Every single one of those was done with Western support from Western super majors like, like Exxon, like Total, all that kind of stuff. Those are None of those can be supported anymore. And Russia doesn't have the technical uh, sophistication or the the tools or the talent to do it itself. And we're seeing a similar thing in the West, although the, that infrastructure is actually much older. It goes back to pipelines that were sent into the, the Warsaw Pact and then were expanded through to, to Western Europe and other countries you know, in, the, in the 80s and 90s and, and on. There's something similar happening there where we're, we're basically seeing Russia run out of oil storage. And once it runs out of oil storage, it has pipelines that go into Western Siberia. And it's only option is probably to shut off the pipes or have everything back up to the, to the wellhead and kabooms. Many kabooms will probably be the result. And this is, this is a, something that is, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this is what's going to happen, blah, 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 blah. But th- this is just a, a basic, this is, a, this is the production side of its energy system. This is how that system functions. It is not done 
to Western standards. It is not done with modern equipment. It's not done with modern technology. Same way Russia doesn't fight wars with modern doctrines or tools or strategies or command and control or any of that. There's a very similar incapacity and limitation just throughout its energy sector. And the more that it can't export, that it can't actually push, it can't keep oil flowing through its pipes, eventually you have to shut those pipes off. There's a similar problem they have in Alaska with the North Slope pipeline right now. I was talking to you earlier. I have two friends from Alaska I just saw a little while ago. They are having extreme problems because there's so little oil flowing through that pipe that they're worried it's just going to freeze. And all sorts of similar problems are really about to bubble up in in Russia. And it, and it makes sense, right? If you have billions, not billions, millions of barrels a day that is no longer flowing, what do you do with all that? Where do you put it, right? And that's going to be a huge thing. Everyone right now is really talking about how we have to, you know, you know punish Russia and do all this kind of stuff, and, and that's that's all fine. But forget about sanctioning all the oil. The oil is going to be gone soon anyway, because they're going to have to shut up. What are they going to do with all of it? So really important. And again, it's a, there's, there's so much chaos that's coming that traders who, who have their you know, eye on the right thing, it, it seems like a bonanza. Uh, but again, it's the really challenging thing also. You mentioned earlier how it's very hard to get good information uh, about China. That's 100% correct. It's really hard. But I think we're actually getting to a point where it's hard to get good information about anything anymore. And it's, I think the whole journalist class, it was really, I mean, starting in the, the 2000s has basically been gutted as an organization. I mean, as, a, as an institution, it, it's been lower and lower quality journalism. Instead of, you know, we basically had generations of foreign correspondents. I mean, one thing, so I have a very geographically based uh, perspective. And so it's a lot of it, this is the ideas I've you know, kind of built from the ground up. And I've always respected how there are a lot of Weird people have a lot of this knowledge. So there's weird eccentric academics. There's uh, diplomats. There's you know international businessmen. All sorts of people that. But also some of the greatest stores of knowledge are, are old foreign correspondents who've been in different areas through decades. They've written on it, reported on it, developed relationships all around this region. And that whole group never passed down their knowledge or their insights or their skills or their anything to a new generation of journalists. All these journalists just the new ones just write articles for tech websites and Vice News, and they, they never developed like a, a real systematic thing here. And so we've lost a whole, you know, a whole window into the way things are. And as a result, the quality of everything has just declined. And I mean, we're seeing that with all the, the moralizing around the war, but even on the energy side of the reporting, it's just like, oh my God, people, what are you talking about? You know, you think obviously, yes, you know, ban this, do that, but it, it's gotten crazy. You're talking about a country like Germany, it's like you're not going to be able to replace Russian oil in probably single-digit years. Probably not going to happen. Or if you do, you're burning lignite and a lot of coal, a lot of you know lignite, which is really bad coal. You're going to have to restart all your nuclear plants. It's, it's all this stuff, but it's just like a feel-good optimism that we don't want things to get worse than they are. And I, I understand it. COVID's been terrible. Russia's terrible. All that kind of stuff. But I mean, for people who are more hard-nosed and financially minded. We definitely need more than more than that. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the oil because it isn't that easy to run these rigs. And even here in Canada, like the U.S. is asking us for more oil, and we're like, sure, we have lots, but we need people, and it takes time to train them, and it takes time to to bring those rigs to production. And like this stuff doesn't happen overnight, so you can't just turn on a switch and all of a sudden pump out a million <laughs> barrels per day. You know, I'm pretty bullish on Canadian oil over the long term. Hmm. I, I think that we're probably going to export a lot more oil over the next 
10 years, the next decade for sure, because just based on all these geopolitical issues that are going on, Canada seems like a safer bet than Russia, but they need oil regardless. So for now, it's got to come from Russia. There is no replacement. And it's a really difficult thing, but it is the way it is. And um, something you mentioned just when you were speaking there about China and emerging markets, one of the questions I sort of had for you was sometimes people talk about financing and different ways that people get money in China mm-hmm. for a lot of people is still considered an emerging market, which is interesting because they have a large GDP and they're a big country. But as you say, they're also very impoverished in different parts of the country. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the greater picture of China as a whole. Yeah, sure. So the the parts of China that are very developed are typically the coastal regions or the upriver regions. So just generally, you have the Pearl River Delta in the south. That's where Guangzhou, that's where Shenzhen, that's where Hong Kong are all located. That was one of the main places where you had the initial trade export boom that started in the 70s and 80s. That was one of the major regions. You also have, like I mentioned earlier, Shanghai, which is in the Yangtze River Delta. That's also where cities like Nanjing is a bit upriver. You have the middle part of the Yangtze. That's where Wuhan is and another number of other cities. As well, you go farther upriver and you have the Sichuan Basin, where you have cities like Chengdu and Chongqing, which are enormous cities. And they're all kind of linked together and they have more, not incredibly linked together, but it's a relatively integrated transportation system. And so those two regions, those uh, sort of the Pearl River Delta, the Yangtze, and those are the two, these are two regions that are relatively developed. Also the region around Beijing, because it's a, and also another city named Tianjin. This is sort of also on the Northern coast. That's also just due to the sheer amount of political will to make this place develop. They managed to do that as well. You leave these regions though, and you are seeing, you, you see some pretty uh, unexpected things. I mean, you see basically widespread poverty. You see all sorts of weird development, like, oh, we built a and so the way, the way it basically works in China, these regions I'm talking about, these ones that have export industries that can have large numbers of high income workers using you know, knowledge and skill-based workers, these are the ones that make use of the investments that are made in China. Because what the government's been doing is it's been you know, exporting and doing a few other things to gain capital that is then reinvested in the country, right? This is a classic, mostly it's basically been a classic version of export-oriented industrialization, which is what Japan did. It's what Germany did. It's what South Korea did, et cetera. It's basically all the major success stories of the last 75 years since 1945. They've all kind of done this. And China did it, it just did it on a way bigger scale. And then what it did is it invested, right? It invested back in these regions, it invested back in the you know, Shanghai region, Hong Kong region, et cetera. Then it tried to spread the love everywhere, right? It wanted to build high-speed rail everywhere and do all this kind of stuff. And what it realized is that these regions can't absorb the investments, Right. You don't, you build some massive five lane highway going both directions and you have nothing, you know, being used. Right. You go, you build all these university facilities and you have all the people just leave to go work in Shanghai, stuff like that. And it's similar if we're talking about Canada, you know, Maritime Canada probably doesn't need massive $20 billion. Do you know what I mean? It's a similar sort of thing. It's like, where are the people? Are they going to live there? Is this going to work? Basic questions like that. And what happened with China is that it pushed this model of development so much farther than any other country. It has been doing, God knows, I can't even remember the number now, but it's what, eight, eight to 12% of GDP into grows like fixed asset, fixed industrial and infrastructure assets for like 30 years. I mean, this is way bigger than Japan. Way, I mean, Japan's probably the best example, 
but it's it's gotten to a point where it's it, it's sheer insanity. And basically, for the last it's basically since the financial crisis, China's been running on a couple of things. It's been running still on exports. It's been running on real estate in particular, everything related to real estate development and construction. It's been running on well, either way, there, there's two more, but the major ones to focus on right now are basically exports and the the real estate side of things. Because what happened? Oh, in heavy industry and construction. So yeah, construct basically um, investment, uh, infrastructure investment, infrastructure investment, and real estate development and exports are basically the three main pillars. And this is what happens: is that whenever there's a downturn or a slight downturn in China in the economics of any of it, it just juices these industries. That's what it's been doing now for close to 15 years. And it's gotten to the point where there's so much of a backlog. It's so overcapitalized. There's so many problems that it's hard to see where any of these industries go, right? So the other, the other major thing that China has been trying to invest in are very high-end, high-value technology industries, right? And these are heavily, very capital-intensive. So that means you know, electronics, that's silicon, that's drones, that's all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's another area where China's also trying to do it. But it's extremely expensive. You're fighting against all of the most competitive industries and companies everywhere in the world. It's not like you just cruise through and demolish a couple of furniture manufacturers in North Carolina or something. It's a very different sort of playing field. But what China has been trying to do is maintain its position in all of the manufacturing industries that it has and keep all of its development industries going and keep investing while investing at the high end and trying to have all of this all of it keep going as it, as it rises up to the top. And this is not what happened, right? So you basically have a massive, probably $60 trillion bubble in the Chinese housing market, which is really something worth talking about. This is most likely the largest asset bubble ever in, in human history. It is, the, the sheer scale of it is insane. It's really something like we talked about earlier. You, you don't quite even understand the scale of it until you've seen it in China, where just as an example, I was taking a train from, I can't even remember, somewhere in a small, no, relatively no-name city in Southern China to another more, rel- more less no-name city in, in Southern China. And I'm going on this, this high-speed train and quite literally on the side of the train, there's, there was just an, a forest of apartment complexes, an absolute forest of completely identical apartment complexes. And this wasn't even in a city. This was just along the track, right? And then you go to the actual cities and it's just, it's like to the horizon. Because it is, uh, it is an industry predicated on throughput, right? It's not about profit. And we could talk about the sort of the deep origins of the Chinese economic model, how it basically did that act of translating, right, the foreign, foreign uh, income that came in into investment. A lot of it was through the control of credit through state banks, stuff like that. But basically, you have credit being pumped out all across the country, and it gets pumped in particular like you saw in the US subprime bubble, all sorts of other places we have excess capital just spewing around, it gets pumped into property in particular. And the scale of that problem is huge. And I mean, people might not know, but Evergrande, which people have heard in the news a lot, Evergrande owes more to foreign creditors than the entire Russian uh, central bank. So it's just, that's just one company. And that's just one of dozens of developers. So the, again, the scale of it is um, hard to fathom, but that, yeah, so that, that is a, a key thing for people to understand, right? You want a big a sort of overview of the Chinese economy. I think that's a good way to think about it. On the coast, you have the really you have a few highly developed zones, a couple that are more upriver as well. The rest, you have a lot of overinvested areas that are underperforming. And then you have a, a whole host of industries where we're expecting China to be at the top of all of the most dynamic industries of the future, these tech-based ones. Typically, that's not what you see. 
And instead, you see a lot of investment. You know, at this point in China's model, it's just going into the same classic categories that you know people have dumped money into poorly for years. Right? Japan did the same thing with a lot of infrastructure investment in the '90s. It wasted trillions of dollars trying to resuscitate its economy. That didn't work. The United States, and among millions of other countries, basically at this point, they all dumped money into residential real estate in particular, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's actually what you're seeing in China. There's always this urge to say, "Oh my God, they're doing the most." Amazing investments. It is the most high-quality industrial policy ever devised by man. It, it is not. So very important to know, and that's a that's a good general overview, I think, of of where things are headed in China. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned that things with China could get a little bit dicey moving forward. We could see some of the similar sanctions that we're seeing to Russia. Do you think that a Taiwan invasion, or they try to reclaim Taiwan, however they would try to word it? Do you think that could be a catalyst for something like that? Yeah. So for a long time, I thought that Taiwan was not as much in the cards as people thought. But things are getting so dicey in China already internally for the Communist Party. Like we talked about, everyone in China can see that the, there's problems in the property market. There's COVID problems. There's problems in the relationship with the United States. There's problems everywhere. Right? China's not really. It doesn't seem like it's emerged into this top tier. Uh, institution. And so just for context, when I was really in China between 2010 and 2015, this was a triumphalist moment in China, where the US had just kind of been hit with the financial crisis. It didn't look like it was handling it all that well. China uh, appeared to handle it a lot better. And when I was in Beijing, you know, this is the the mood there was ebullient. It was, it was a, a mood of, of triumph. And it's amazing how much things have changed all across China now. And the question of Taiwan is important because it used to be like they just wanted to sort of be accepted that Taiwan would become part of uh, China and that would be it. That now it realizes that is going to happen. But at the same time, the Communist Party is it needs something to hang its hat on. The way it worked, the way it uh, propped itself up over the years has been the Communist Party hasn't run on elections or anything like that. It's run on performance. You know, political scientists call it performance legitimacy. But basically, it said, look at these results. Look at what I've given you. You have dishwashers, you have roads, you have this every, and there was really for the last 40 years, at least 30 years, you're looking at serious incremental progress day after day, right? Regardless of human rights problems, regardless of other things, they could point to all of this. And the Chinese people in general prefer order to chaos. And so they, they stuck with it. Now, the chaotic forces seem to be getting a little more out of control. And the Chinese Communist Party needs, it needs to control things a bit better and if things are really going bad, it is not inconceivable that it can try and attack Taiwan to gain control of the narrative, to gain control over its destiny, to try and whip up a, a nationalist frenzy that it can control to assert itself in, in various ways. Uh, admittedly, now that Russia is face planting in Ukraine, that seems a little less likely because China is realizing some variant of what it's seeing in in Ukraine would likely happen with, with Taiwan as well. And there's, I mean, Taiwan is a modern, industrialized, westernized nation. You know, it's you know, supported and it was and it exists kind of like South Korea. It exists because the United States uh, made it exist. And yeah, it's it's an interesting question. We're all also seeing that there, the strong support for Ukraine is in part because it's a Western nation to some degree, right? We didn't see that when Russia invaded uh, Georgia or whatever in 2008. Nobody cared all that much. It was like a Central Asian type thing. 
And this is possible the similar, there could be a certain similar response to Taiwan, but it seems extremely unlikely. And we've now seen the largest set of sanctions ever. You could argue that that Russia is the most sanctioned country in history, like more than all of them combined. It, it's crazy what, what we're seeing. So it's it's a dicey, it's a it's a really dicey thing. Also, you know, I'm I've said this for a long time, but conquering Taiwan is extraordinarily difficult for different reasons than uh, Ukraine, but for equally bad and difficult, naughty, gnarly reasons. Like it, it's quite easy. Like we're seeing, we're basically seeing Russia lose. I mean, it's probably lost. 25% of its military, effective military capacity, its, its soldiers in this conflict due to basically death, a desertion, and being wounded, right? You add the wounded in particular, and it's a, it's a really big number. And there's pretty good estimates that China could lose something like a third of its military capacity trying to take Taiwan. And the US is in particular now starting to give Taiwan more and more asymmetric military capabilities, things that would make it Obviously, you want to fight on the battlefield and have your jets in the air, but that's probably not as, as likely for very long, although Ukraine is doing it. But a few things, basically two things in particular would make it near impossible to conquer Taiwan. I mean, basically mines, naval mines, and enough uh, missiles, both uh, you know, surface to, to, to sea and surface to air missiles, basically. Anti-ship missiles and anti-air missiles, it could make it extremely difficult to, uh, basically impossible to conquer Taiwan. And also, the another thing that people always need to realize with basically conquering any other country, you need energy to do this. War is extraordinarily energy intensive. The all of these all of these vehicles require a lot of fuel, right? Uh, tanks, all the ships, all the jets, and China does not have those resources. And so that is that's another challenge. I mean, basically, cut off the ener energy supply. Not only does the war stop, but all the lights go off in China. So this has been the calculus, right? This has been the, there's a good reason why they've never tried to invade Taiwan so far. There is an increasing potential that they could do so due to their own internal political problems, but there's also a pretty big countervailing force of what they're seeing happen in Ukraine. And also China's military, although it's probably better than Russia's, is not as capable as we think either. It has, similar to Russia, it has a lot of these really good tools, but it has not fought a war in, since 1979. And it's never fought one with basic modern technologies. It's never secured airspace over anything. It's never done, a, a, conducted a, a joint operation. It's never done anything next to anything nearly as complicated as an amphibious invasion, let alone an amphibious, an amphibious assault, let alone an invasion, which amphibious invasions, by the way, are probably the single most difficult military operation to conduct. And they're even more difficult in the modern environment we have where little where any guy in, in his apartment could have a drone with a with a weapon on it, which is what we're seeing in Ukraine, where a lot of actually Chinese drones are being used for all sorts of uh low-level warfare uses. So it's a it's a real big change. Yeah, absolutely. This is a modern era that we've never really seen with such a large invasion like we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia. There's obviously been some proxy wars here and there, but um I think we're sort of learning a lot with that, or at least you know governments are learning a lot and it's probably for the best that Russia doesn't do very well because you wouldn't want to embolden China into making a move like that if they say, well, well, if Russia can do it, then we can do it. Something else that I want to ask you about was, I know they sort of have this vision of one China and everybody for the greater good, but they're also kind of capitalists too. And I know, you know, maybe I think it was last year, Jack Ma just disappeared, who's, uh, you know, obviously the... CEO or leader of Alibaba, 
how does that country sort of see themselves? Are they capitalists or are they communists? I'm kind of confused <laughs> with the whole thing, if I'm honest. Yeah. So one, this is maybe the most common question that I that I'm asked about China, and I've actually I'm actually putting out a, a series that's trying to explain some of the answer some of these questions right now. It's called Tales of the Communist Empire. It's a five part series. It's it's out on my podcast. People should check it out. I think it's on the third episode at this point. Maybe the fourth is coming out today or tomorrow, and it tries to answer this. But I'll just you know give you some of the answers now. China is super confused about all these things. China's entrance into the modern world was difficult. It was tumultuous, and it remains very conflicted. You know, China is technically a you know a people's republic, right? But it's never had a republic in its history. It, a lot of people in China actually think uh, democracy means just a government that rules in the public interest. So a lot of Chinese people think their government is a democracy. It's extremely confused in all sorts of ways. And again, it's like, we wouldn't even, we think this is crazy, but it's just a completely different place. And the real challenge with the communism capitalism thing is, or the, a great way to think about it is that the system that China developed since the 1970s, roughly speaking, could be called one party state capitalism. And the most important, the more important term comes first. So one party, that's the most thing, political authority comes first. Then you have the state, which is state authority, which is, uh, crazy as it sounds, the party and the state are separate in China. The party controls the state. The party actually built the state in China. The party is decades older than the Chinese state, which is a rare thing. You don't see that in Western nations typically. So you have one party state and then you have capitalism. And the way it works is capitalism only comes at the, it's, it comes at the behest of the party, right? The quality and the degree and the extent of market systems in the country is entirely dependent on what the car, on what the party wants. And what happened in the 1940s and 50s is the party came in, you know, it built the state, it built the Chinese state, which is modeled after the ancient you know, Chinese imperial states and the Russian and the Soviet Union. But at the same time, it destroyed the market. It eviscerated all pre-existing market systems in China and basically made civilized life impossible, right? And you had all these problems. You had the great, you had great famines, great leap forward, cultural revolution, all these problems. And then what happened by the late 1970s, things were so bad in China, they were looking, they're basically barreling towards famine and civil war once more. And so the answer, part of the answer was to reintroduce market systems into the country. And then in particular to integrate them into global markets, right? And particularly to allow China to serve foreign consumers, particularly the United States. That is how they would get the capital to reinvest in the country. And that's what they did. The really sort of key thing about this is that the party always controlled the extent and degree of capitalism within the country. And right now, and with, uh, Jack Ma and, and Alibaba, what we've been seeing, particularly in the 2010s, is starting in the 2010s, really accelerating in the 2010s, is the reimposition of party control ac across wide swaths of the economy, right? The era of freewheeling capitalism, which the party used to juice up the growth rate to help modernize the country, to help compete with first the Soviet Union and now increase, you know, eventually the, the United States as well. That was that was its goal. And it actually succeeded in many respects too well. Because the challenge for China, and historically this has always been the challenge, China has a lot of internal contradictions and problems where it doesn't have the same relationship to the market that a place like Canada or the United States does. It's an extremely contentious relationship because what happens is the most dynamic regions in China, like I mentioned, these coastal regions, they're dynamic in part because they can connect to the rest of the world. There are large swaths of China that cannot and that are really stuck kind of glaring at each other and trying to get what they can get. And what happens is whenever you allow too many market forces into China, it tends to, it invariably creates 
instabilities, inequalities, and ultimately sort of chaotic rifts within the country. And that's a, you know, for people who are in the West and have more uh, individual rights, uh, free market type values, that's a hard thing to, to maybe hear because we've often been told that markets are the best thing everywhere. And markets are a great thing, but they're, they're not a good substitute for religion. And they're also not equally effective everywhere, right? So no market can help Afghanistan. No market could help Russia if it loses its oil. No market can do all sorts. It can't get rid of centuries of conflict, right? There's things that markets can't solve. And in particular, the, the Chinese problems, the internal tensions within the country start to reach a, a fever pitch where if you allow more of it to go on, you get basically bloody revolutions. Important thing to keep in mind is always that China, before the 20th century, the two deadliest wars in human history were both Chinese civil wars. And the worst famines in human history, all Chinese, the worst natural disasters in, in China, all Yellow River floods in China. So the scale of what can happen when there's a state breakdown in China is pretty immense. It's a big reason why a lot of Western countries who saw knew all of these things at various moments decided to try and work with uh, communist butchers, right? Like that, that was kind of what was happening. But this is the way things are. So in, in China, at the depending on where you are in, in the government, right? So you have the party, there's 95, basically 95 million people who are part of the ruling clique, and you have everybody else. And <laughs> the lower down you are, the more you've been you've been for, just force-fed propaganda. You don't quite know what's going on as much. But the real challenge for China is that there is no internal, internally consistent and coherent integration of all these things we're talking about. The, the party and communism and capitalism and the ancient empires and Chinese history and the roots of Chinese civilization, there is no well-knitted version of this. And a great thing to contrast it with is Japan. Japan did that. Japan had a history, recent history, last 500 years. Parts of it were a lot like Chinese history. They're brutal and fragmented and chaotic and vicious and war-strewn. Then it really changed. Starting in the, the late 19th century, it actually integrated all of these things together. And you know, within decades, it was you know wiping out the Russians in a major naval battle. It was colonizing China. It eventually, it was taking over basically all of East Asia. And the big difference here is that China, Japan, is a much more, much smaller, more manageable, and more cohesive population. It's more homogenous in a lot of ways. The Chinese population, when you were talking about one China, there is no one China. China is not one place. Is not one place. And best way to think about it is well. Uh, a region like Guangzhou, which is the province that uh, near Hong Kong in the south of that Pearl River Delta, it has more people than any European nation except for Russia, right? And there's many other cities and many other provinces that are just as big. And they all have, many of them have their own languages, right? In China, they there's we, we think Chinese is one language and the propaganda from the government has been that it's all one language. It's not. There's one written language and there's dozens of spoken languages that are mutually unintelligible. And with the process that the Chinese state has been undergoing for centuries is to crush out and flatten all of these differences to try and make it more of a cohesive state or more of a cohesive territory run by this single state. That process isn't complete. It's complete in the Yangtze region. It's complete in the northern uh, China around Beijing type region and in a few other places. But you go farther than that, it's not. And you go much farther than that. You go to all the Tibet, Xinjiang, uh, former Manchuria, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, all of these areas are basically a giant security fence around those core regions of China near the Yellow and, Yan and Yangtze rivers. And they're basically, you know, a security fence where you, you have Chinese military patrolling regions that aren't Chinese. And hence you have problems with the Uyghurs. 
Tibetans, et cetera. And that's the, the way things are. So that one China image from root to tip is, is false, but it's part of the political propaganda and myth-making that the Chinese state and you know basically the, the nation needs to try and bring itself together. Unfortunately, that process has failed. So obviously it failed because Mao didn't manage to take Taiwan, but it's also failed because they're not able to integrate you know, Hong Kong adequately into the fold. They're not able to integrate you know, Tibetans and all these things. The, the way they were trying to do it was the same way they got everybody else in China on board. It was performance legitimacy. Look how beautiful Lhasa is becoming. Look how beautiful uh, Xinjiang is becoming. Look at all these jobs we have, et cetera. And that didn't work. It didn't stamp out the different ethnic, uh, religious, linguistic uh, differences. And as horrible as it sounds, China just needs, <laughs> China needs decades or maybe you know, a century or more to grind out these differences. That is what we're talking about. I know this isn't how people typically think about politics, but if you take the long perspective, that's what they've done to the parts of China that are now really part of a single, uh, relatively cohesive chunk. For the other regions, it's just not there yet. Yeah, and they, they're sort of well-known for taking the long game in China. I think that they generally have a long point of view, and they, they tend to do it that way. Another question that I had for you was in regard to crypto. And I, I know this is kind of a buzzword, but it, it is a disruptive technology. I'm not really a crypto guy. I don't have a ton of information on that. But I did see that China banned crypto. And I also know that China does a lot of, well, from what I've heard, I, obviously I don't have the facts, but it seems like they do a lot of da- data mining with like apps and, and different, oh, yeah. different products that come from China. They do data mining with on us. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the technology side of that country. Yeah, definitely. Let me first turn on the light so you can see me better. I think it's start to get dark here. Well, crypto is interesting. So yes, so China, well, I'll do the Chinese side of things first. So China totally banned crypto for basically, the basic reason is financial stability. Uh, Other reason is capital flight. Uh, Another reason is a lack of political control over the technology. And basically, a lot of a lot of one of the large contingents of people that like crypto in the West are more libertarian minded. They're trying. It was you know, something that sort of spawned after 2008. It was there to try and find a way out of central bank controlled currencies and all that kind of stuff and inflation and um, debased currency, all that kind of stuff. That's uh, fine, but that's not what the Communist Party is about. <laughs> they do not want anything like that to exist within their territory, and they also have the power to totally stamp it out. So a lot of crypto in China, well, there's a lot of things we're doing. They were doing a lot of crypto type things in China, but a lot of the mining was in China. And they were particularly near Xinjiang, Western China, where you have really big, cheap, dirty energy from coal plants, stuff like that. It's actually a big reason why you do a lot of energy intensive manufacturing out in that region as well. And The crypto mining is extremely, the Bitcoin mining is is very energy intensive. So a lot of it was done there. China banned it, moved to Kazakhstan, moved to other places, but there's actually energy problems kind of all over now. So crypto has uh, real problems on that front. And then even more significantly for China is they, they banned anyone, roughly speaking, with a crypto wallet from connecting, interfacing with the Chinese financial system, with any of the state banks, anything like that, you're basically excommunicated. And a big reason that why they could do this is because they have basically central control of the entire financial system. There's four major state banks in China. Almost everything is routed through them in one way or another or around them or basically, right? That's the way it works. So that was all relatively easy. And again, the big reason why I wanted to do this, the, the yen, I mean, not the yen, the, the yuan, the the Chinese currency, also known as the renminbi, is 
the most overcapitalized currency like in, in the history of the world, right? They've been printing money like nobody would believe since 2008. It's ridiculous. It, it's, it's really ridiculous. Uh, it's funny that the actual numbers escape me now, but it, it's crazy. So they don't want anyone to have a way out of, uh, of their system. They actually need to maintain as much capital within their borders and within their, uh, their currency as possible. This is a big reason why the, the renminbi is never going to be internationalized. It's never going to replace the dollar. It's never going to do anything like that. I mean, in addition to the capital controls and to the fact the government in, intervenes in the currency all the time, all of that is, is not, there's many reasons why that was never going to happen, but it, it's definitely not anymore. And like I mentioned earlier, there's that capital flight that's coming out of China. It really accelerated around the time of the Shanghai stock exchanges problems. I think it was 2015. Like a huge, huge crash, kind of like a flash crash type event, spooked a lot of people, spooked investors in and out of China, and you had all this uh, capital flight. And crypto, one of its, you know, one of the things it could be really good for is to aid that capital flight, right? To help get money out of Russia, money out of China, all that kind of stuff. So it's really clamping down on that for that reason as well. Uh, I think also just crypto in general. A lot of close friends of mine, people I know, people I've talked to, people I've consulted for, very into crypto. And I was originally one, I, I still always have liked the technology. I've liked distributed ledgers. I like that. I like the blockchain type stuff. But and for a while, I was like one of those people who said, oh, like, I like blockchain, but not Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. I think we're kind of at a point where we're seeing what you know the ecosystem is is evolving into. And we basically have on the Ethereum side of things, you have a attempted MasterCard Visa replacement payment type system as the base for all the other apps they want to develop on top of it. And then on the, in the crypto, I mean, the Bitcoin side is basically a replacement for gold. And the way I look at the world, I look at things from a lot of the major systems. So I look at manufacturing, I look at agriculture, I look at defense, I look at space, I look at energy, et cetera. And so that's kind of the way I've done things. And obviously finance and uh, uh, monetary policy, that, that's a big part of it. But I don't, these aren't, these aren't the uh, tech solutions we're looking for is the way I'm sorry to think about things because I don't think that these solve the civilizational questions that are really kind of basically, we're, you know, they're staring us in the face, right? With all these, the challenges that are coming. And I don't think they're going to succeed, at least in their current iteration. So I just given my, my two cents on that, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a real challenge. Also, I think it's also important to sort of generalize what China is doing with, with crypto and all, all that, because I think that the, we have the most extensive sanctions regime ever placed on Russia. And any inkling that crypto is an escape valve for that, that it is you know, being used in any way to escape these sanctions, to do anything like that is going to be very painful for it. And yeah, it's really tough. I, I think that there's a, a hope that crypto will become a bit like too big to fail as, a, as an asset class, a speculative asset class, and then it'll kind of just be you know, normalized, integrated into the system. Uh, but there's a lot of things that really, you know, for people who are interested in some you know, headwinds or maybe against it, any hint, obviously, that you're assisting to escape sanctions, which is, right, the U.S. sanctions regime is, is very intense. And the same way that people want to escape the world of, of inflation and, you know, uh, fiat currency, and all that, you're also escaping uh, the financial <laughs> sanctions regime at the same time. And that puts you in bed with people like uh, terrorist organizations and uh, cartels and stuff like that. And the more... You know, if you start to see major usage of either Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything like that for, you know, for these sorts of activities, basically money laundering, drug dealing, all sorts of smuggling, all that kind of stuff, which is a massive, massive industry all around the world, you're really entering 
appeared uh, to trouble. So we're in the, the next couple of years, crypto has to find some really great use cases for normal people that aren't, well, hopefully it's something that's not a redundant, like it has to be, if, it's, if you're gonna compete with MasterCard and Visa, you at least gotta be cheaper or something. Like, <laughs> I mean, yes, you wanna be anonymous, but God, who, who's wants, you know, most people don't need everything they do to be anonymous. Again, yeah, there's the sole invasive uh, security regime, but you're also kind of putting a, shining a spotlight on yourself. So I'd also be very, also the security, I won't get too much into crypto, but the, it isn't quite as secure as a lot of people are saying, the more you, you know, interact with national security, intelligence, um, law enforcement types, it's it's not quite, uh, we, I mean, we've obviously seen that where they've been able to like capture things. Uh, you know, oh, there's a, it was hacked, it was stolen, and we found it a couple of weeks later. But yeah, so I'll leave it at that. Um, crypto in general, for China, it deal it limits its control over its currency, over its capital controls, the general uh, political authority. It's also a decentralized system. Every, in China, everything has to be centralized, you know, by and through the Communist Party, and by the by and through the Communist Party's uh, official leadership. It was something that Jack Ma kind of uh, ran afoul of. So that's the the China crypto story. As for data mining, oh yeah, man, this is the most extensive AI driven mass data collection and interpretation mechanism ever devised by mankind, right? Um, it's, I mean, China has been explicitly feeding in basically every type, every type of data that you can imagine into this system. And so again, great way to, we've know, covered a lot of ground here so I can touch back on things. So the, those perimeter zones, those sort of border security zones like Xinjiang, Tibet, all of that, that's actually where China has been testing out all of its you know, social control, population control measures. And so what it did, particularly against the Uyghurs, is it cataloged all their data. So it went, it got gait analysis of them, it got facial analysis of, of their, their faces, it got blood scores, it got basically every biometric data you could get, but also uh, nuance, tone, it got you know auditory stuff, pretty, pretty ridiculously extensive. And it made databases of all this stuff so it could basically find you anywhere. And it rolled that out into China. And obviously there's things like social credit scores is trying to find a way to lower the cost of social controls and trying to get people to internalize the social controls that the state wants them to abide by, right? So you want them to be good citizens. It wants its citizens to be good citizens in the way that it sees good citizens. And that is its uh, effort. And the technology side of things, this massive uh, data collection operation is essential to the way that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to maintain power. It is extraordinarily difficult to control like one person, five people, 10 people, a billion people, more than a billion people. That is, it, it's unwieldy, right? So China actually spends more on internal security, on policing its own population than on external defense, which means preparing to take Taiwan or fight the United States. It, it, that is how big a problem this is. And so this AI is you know, massive, you know, machine learning, AI, all the, all the buzzwords for it, this, this big data thing, this is, this is a great way for them to see, they see to actually try and lower the cost of things, to make it more manageable, to do some minority report style stuff that makes what they see coming more feasible, right? If you have problems like you see in Shanghai right now, how do you know who to punish? How do you figure this out? You don't have enough people to punish all the people to even monitor everything. You really want things to be fed through uh, systems. And again, this is very, very different from our modern Western ideas of, of, of individual rights, of you know, uh, you know, due process, of you know, an adversarial legal system, any of that. All that is, is gone. This is about how a massive uh, authoritarian megastate maintains that status and its control over a population that could easily rip everything it's done to shreds. 
that that's its, its question and its challenge. And yeah, so another area to really focus on the success, uh, the cre- the more creepy it is, <laughs> that's probably a sign that, you know, it's, they're actually really going for it because it needs to be creepy. This, no, this better be creepy. If it's not creepy, you're not trying hard enough. She, that's, that's, that's like the creepy, the bad way to think about it. And yeah, and definitely an area to watch because I don't think this is going to work. I, I think there's almost zero chance this is going to work. It is it is so unwieldy, and obviously you need you need energy, you need all sorts of things to make this whole system run. If you if you have a famine, if you have a lack, if you have food shortages, and people don't have you know food in their bellies for one, two, three days, it doesn't matter how advanced your your technologies and social control systems are. There's nothing you could do, and that is sort of the deeper underlying. Uh, problem that China's probably facing. It's not like, oh, he he jaywalked and now he thinks he could do it again. Or he said this online. It's like, he looks like he and a lot of his friends are like, they're going to go for a long walk through the streets, gathering more and more people as they go. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm not sure. Sh- I agree with you on a couple of things you said there. I'm still at the stage where I believe that blockchain is a great technology, although I'm not sure that Bitcoin or Ethereum will be worth a million dollars and also i'm not sure that an ai propelled authoritarian regime is going to necessarily be able to control that many people i think it's going to be really difficult to try to do that with this supercomputer and i think just this talk in general sort of has opened my eyes a little bit to china and the risk that china is and it was always more like what is china going to do to us but now it really feels like what is China going to do to themselves? Because I think that that's a really big risk for us. And I've never really looked at it that way. So I do really appreciate your insight on that. Cause it, it, I didn't realize that they were so segregated in their beliefs and the population and their areas and their state. So it, it's really important to get some of that insight. So with that being said, I wanted to just thank you for coming on. Like there's so much stuff here. I'm going to have to get you on again to talk about other things because i mean it's geopolitically there's so much involved and uh this has been great just want to say thanks if you if you want to go ahead and uh let everybody know where they can find more of your content feel free yeah thanks i appreciate you you know you have me on here joe is good and for anyone who wants to you know find more about what i do you should check out what do i have i have instagram tiktok twitter and youtube those those good places um tiktok i've been doing these small short videos Ideally, I'll do them when I'm traveling more and I'm explaining, you know, I'm trying to explain some of why the world is the way it is. Why is a city is, why is a city where it is? You know, why is this industry there? Why is that state incredibly weak? Why is this one a mega state or super powerful? All that kind of stuff. Uh, YouTube, I got, you know, videos. You should also, you know, also all sorts of live streams, videos, interviews, stuff like that. Check out the podcast, China Unraveled. Uh, It's cool for everybody, you know, everybody listening. I think it's like 17, 18 episodes now and I'll, keep adding stuff to that. So yeah, no, I think that's everything. And again, thanks for, thanks for having me. And I'd love to come back on. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.